Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So if you turn on the news or the radio or flip through your news feed, however it is that you interact with the world out there, it doesn't take long before you are reminded far too many times on a daily basis that the world that we are living in is not operating according to the shape and design that God created it for human flourishing. The world is not as it's supposed to be, and all the frustration and the pain and the weariness of life leads all of us, even on our very best days, to desperately hope that there must be something better than this. Anybody with me this morning? There must be something better than this. And the good news is that the Christian story and God's word tells us that there is something better than this. In fact, there's two realities. There's something far, far better than this ahead of us. We're not there yet. We long for that day. We pray for that day. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But even as he has us here on this earth, there is something better. There's a quality of life. Not without pain, not without challenge. But there's something better for us now. There's a way of living as people in Jesus. But the truth is, we must live knowing that we are, in a way, exiles. We're people who are not living in our permanent home. So generally speaking, an exile is someone who's been banned or barred from living in the place they call home, often because of political or punitive reasons. The truth is, we're exiles. From Genesis 3 on, In a way, God has made us exiles. That's hard news, but we've been banned from living in this perfect place, which is captured by this idea of of Eden, this perfect garden, where we have pure fellowship with one another and God and with his creation. And we're longing for that, but we have been banned. We're now exiles. We're living in a world that is broken by sin, a world that is not the way it is supposed to be. But the good news is that the same God who banned us as exiles has also provided the perfect solution to bring us back to this place of restoration, of relationship, to bring us back into the family, to take us back in a way to the garden and the place before sin came into the world. But this God has also said to his people while living in exile to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the verse from the book of Jeremiah where we have this idea of being a church that is for, in particular for Tulsa, to be for the place that God has called us to be. And so each of us, As part of our calling, we unpack this idea of calling, I have to understand that we have a calling to faithful presence, to faithful engagement, to be present where God has placed us. To put it the way that Jesus did, which is always a good idea, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard me say it's easy to be in the world. 
Or it's easy to not be of the world, but it's hard to be in the world and not of the world. You catch that? That's the tension that we're living in. And we have to hold that tension. We have to faithfully engage. We are a missional people. We're called to be in the city to get our hands dirty. But yet to not be people of the world, to be the people of God in the world until he chooses to call us home and wrap this whole thing up. That's what we're called to. So this morning, as we wrap up this series, The God Who Calls, the reason I began with this lens of exile is because we're looking at part of a letter that was written by Peter that is directed at the beginning of the letter. He says he's writing to the elect of God, the people of God who are exiles. They are actually exiles. In addition to being spiritual exiles, they are political exiles. They've been scattered throughout the region. You remember last week we talked about Paul, Saul, right? And the persecution that was happening. Well, the Lord appeared to Saul and he had a dramatic change in his life, but he wasn't the only one persecuting Christians. So here's where we are in the story. Later on, these Christians have been scattered and Peter is writing to them and he wants to encourage them in their state of exile not to lose their identity as the people of God. To be true to what they believe and to be true to who they are in Christ to become these new people. But it's hard. It's hard being in exile. We feel this tension. We feel the challenge. Because when you're away from home, everything's harder. But we are exiles. So as exiles, we're living in a foreign place with foreign culture and foreign food and different languages, all the challenges that cross-cultural missionaries face. And in a way, we're all in a cross-cultural setting. We're in a world that is coming at us in lots of different ways. And so as spiritual exiles, I think it's helpful for us to filter our text this morning through several important questions that are central to our humanity. And if we don't seek answers to these questions, they're going to be answered for us. So a couple of big idea questions here. The first one is, who am I? Identity. Every human being has to answer that question. Who am I? Where do I belong? Community, right? These are just basic needs, right? And what was that created to do? Purpose. And it's really unlivable not to have answers to these questions because even non-answer is is really an answer, right? If we don't have a clear identity, it will be shaped for us. You have an identity. Question is, are you intentional in understanding your identity and who you are? And as the people of God, it is critical As we live in exile, we live in a world that is not our own. If we're going to be faithful to this calling to be in the world, but not of the world, we have to know who we are. We have to know where we belong. We have to know what our purpose is. What are we called to do? And so this morning, this beautiful text that we have, uh, it's amazing how it answers these questions. It's almost like God was involved in putting these words on paper. We get answers, not the only answers in Scripture. This is just one small piece, but we get some answers to these important questions. Questions. And I believe the Bible provides compelling and integrated, holistic answers to these questions for us. So at the beginning of the letter, Peter's trying to communicate the amazing good news of what God has done for us in Christ. Here in chapter 2, where we're dipping down in this series, a little bit different. We're not going through the whole book of the Bible. We're just dipping in. And in chapter 2, Peter is seeking to explain the status that Christ followers have as the people of God so that they will lean into this identity as a testimony to the world of what life looks like under the reign of God. It's what you're called to do. 
to lean into the identity that you have been given as the people of God and to demonstrate what life looks like under the reign of God. So the first two questions are tied closely together. Who am I and where do I belong? For Jesus' people, our identity is very much tied to our community. And so Peter demonstrates how this status or identity as the people of God begins, of course, with the status of Christ. And so in Christ, you are a member of the House of Representatives. You didn't realize this, but you're a house rep, okay? I hate to use political metaphors because, you know, we all know our politics is, is really messed up and all that. Like, we would do it any better. But you are a member of the House of Representatives. That's a kind of image that the Bible gives us for of a house. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You see, we were created in the image of God. Every person. What does that mean? It means we were created to reflect God, right? We're not God, but in ways we reflect who he is. Now, because of sin, we don't do that perfectly. We don't even come close, but yet the image of God is still in us. That's part of our calling is simply to reflect what God is like. So as we become like Jesus, who is God, right? Our, our character, our actions, our attitudes more and more reflect what God is like. So we're to be his representatives in the world. It's really s- simple. It's straightforward, but it's an incredibly difficult calling to do that with consistency, with fidelity over time. But we are called to be God's representatives in the world. That's what his people were called to do in the Old Testament. And it's what we're called to do today. And Peter builds a case that these people who are now exiles, they've been rejected by the world, but he's trying to tell them that they have a privileged status in the kingdom of God. He's trying to write to encourage them. Though they have no home to call their own, they're being built into a new house for God. You may not have a home. You may feel homeless. You are an exile. But we know that our true spiritual home is that we are part of the house of God. Scripture uses a number of metaphors to talk about this reality. It talks about the body with many parts, right? We're also in other places. Paul also uses this metaphor of being a house that is built on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. We've already sung about that this morning. By the way, the hymns were really awesome today. I mean, were you paying attention? That last one, I don't know if I've ever heard it before, but it it was really good. So God is building a new house on the foundation of Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us theologically? That we are being built into a house, that Jesus is the stone, we are living stones. Well, it's a reminder to us of a truth that we know, but we need to be reminded of often, and that is that the church is not a building. We have a great building in the heart of Tulsa. We praise God for this facility. We want to leverage it the best we can to be a blessing to our community for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. We praise God for this building. We're trying to take care of it. We want to make it to be a place that where people can come and gather and hear about the good news of Jesus. But this is not the church. We are the church. And we need to have absolute clarity about that. We are the church. 
If, if, if we lose our tax exempt status, we lose this building, whatever. It, you know what? We're the church. You can't take that away. We are the living church built upon Jesus, who is the cornerstone of this house. Now, Scripture argues that as individuals, we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible reality. You guys know this. Just, it blows my mind. But the Spirit of the living God, when we, by faith, enter the family of God through Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. But we also want to be careful that we don't just individualize that. We know we're a very individualistic culture. Christian theology tells us that the Spirit of God comes to live in us as individuals, but even more so emphasizes in a number of places that together, as the people of God, we are the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. So let's make sure that we understand that it is a corporate thing. It also means that God's presence goes with us. We don't have to make pilgrimage to a special place to go and to worship God. We don't even have to come here in this building. I think scripture tells us to come and to gather together on a weekly basis. We're instructed to do that, but we don't have to come here to access the presence of God. We don't even have to have a a special prayer closet, although that's a great thing. I think to have a, a designated place where you go to meet with the Lord, that can be a great thing. I'm not diminishing that, but you don't have to go to any particular place. The house of God goes with us. His presence goes with us. We have access to him all the time. What an opportunity. Now, the fact that Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone is kind of ironic. If you realize that Peter's original name was Simon, and then he becomes known as Simon Peter. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him, uh, and Peter means the rock. So here's Peter saying, even though Jesus named him the rock, he's saying, Jesus, no, Jesus is the big rock. He is the precious stone. He's the cornerstone. He is the living stone, and we are like stones that are built into his house. This image is drawn from Isaiah 28, 16, a passage which he quotes along with some pieces of Psalms. He strings them together to make an important comparison. That is that Jesus, the living stone, will be viewed from one of two perspectives. You will either see Jesus as the cornerstone or you will see him as a stumbling block. This is not the only place in the Bible, but the Bible is clear that there's, there are two approaches to Jesus. You can't be neutral about him. In fact, your response to Jesus is central to the life of faith. And you can't be neutral about it. You either see Jesus is he is who he says he is, which is that he is God and he is the cornerstone, or he becomes a stumbling block to you. Because you can say, well, Jesus was a nice guy and he was a, a good teacher and people really admired him. But the thing is, he claimed to be God. So he was either true in that statement or he was false. There's only two approaches to him. He will either be precious to you or he will be a stumbling block. I love this uh, quote here from a commentator I was reading, Dr. Juan Sanchez, a Reformed pastor down in Texas. 
Dr. Sanchez says this. He says, Jesus is an offensive, decisive figure who demands total allegiance. He is the cornerstone or he is nothing. He's not willing to be just one brick in our own building. He calls us to be built into his. Wow. And to everyone who hears that, it is either the most wonderful news or the most offensive. That's powerful. I think even as followers of Jesus, we can be tempted at times to try to be building a house for ourselves. And maybe even use Jesus. Maybe even he's, like we see him as the biggest stone, but we're building our house and we're trying to use Jesus to get there. And Jesus won't have any of that. No, no, no. It's whose house are you building? You see, it's his house. And we are one stone, an important precious stone that Jesus loves, but we are a stone that is being used by God for him to build his house. So here's the question, whose house are you trying to build? Because again, culture tells us you got to go out there and you got to make a name for yourself. You got to stake your claim in this world. You got to build a house for yourself. And we can get caught up in that, can't we? And we sound so spiritual and sounds good that we, we almost even try to hijack Jesus or God or religion more generally into being part of that equation. But really, we're just trying to build our own house. That's why it can be hard when, when things don't go well in the building project. <laughs> we get kind of mad and we, we blame God. The problem is we're just building the wrong house. He is building his house. We are stones in that house. It's an important perspective. In addition to this extended metaphor, we see embedded in this section of the letter this idea that the people of God are not only stones that form the house, but we're also called to be the priesthood that serves within the house. So are we the house? Are we the priests in the house? We're both. How's that work? Well, Jesus said that he was the sacrificial lamb and he was the high priest. Can you be the priest and the lamb at the same time? I don't know, but Jesus did it. So he says, likewise, we can be in kind of two positions. We're part of the house, but yet we're also servants within the house. So Peter gives us this great idea to understand our identity of the priesthood of all believers. Verse 5, he calls us a holy priesthood. In verse 9, he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I don't have time to unpack each of those phrases, perhaps some other time as we're going through this great book, First Peter. But what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? What does that mean? Like, sounds really good. It's a great scripture verse. Like, we'll probably print it on pillows and t-shirts. It's what we do in America. But what does that mean? We're a royal priesthood. That's a big idea. Well, if you think about the basic function of the priests in the Old Testament, they were called to care for the temple. They were called to serve in the temple. And they were called to teach people, in a way. And they were mediators. They were there to be a go-between between God and the people, right? But what's so different now is that it says we are a royal priesthood. Instead of the priests being a select group of people, which were the descendants of Aaron, of course. 
Instead of the priests being just a particular group of people, we are all called to be priests. So what does that mean? Well, it means we have access to God. Again, same as the idea of the house of representative. We are the house. His presence is with us. In the Old Testament, people couldn't go into the inner holy of holies. Only one person, the high priest, and only one day of the year, and only if he followed the right rules and made sacrifices in the right way on his own behalf, because even the high priest wasn't perfect. And they would do all these crazy things. They would like tie bells to themselves so that when they went in there, like if the bell stopped ringing, you knew that was not a good thing. Because we see them, people get consumed in the holy presence of God. So how now can the New Testament say that we can have direct access to God? What's changed? Nothing's changed other than the fact that God is still holy, but God has made a perfect and holy sacrifice, so holy and so good that we no longer have to have this separation. Right? When Jesus died, that that separation was gone, was removed. The the veil separating, keeping people out of the inner holy of holies was torn in half because, not because God's less holy now, he's as holy as he's ever been, but because a sacrifice was made on our behalf that was so holy and so good. And so now because we have access, we were priests. All of us. So get out your robe and your whatever, all the things. I just, this was, this is kind of random. I think I'm the only one wearing a tie in here this morning. I don't know why I noticed that when I was sitting there. Like... We're priests. We have access to God. We're called to serve God in his temple. And now the sacrifices, we're still called to make sacrifices. They're just not bloody animal sacrifices. Our sacrifice now is, is, the sacrificial worship of our entire lives, Romans 12 tells us. It's praise and thanksgiving and good deeds, doing it all in the name of the Lord, because he loves us. So who are we? Where do we belong? Well, who we are is we're part of the house of representatives. And that we're part of the priesthood of all believers who serve in the house. Bring God's presence to the world and worship Him. But the third question that I posed this morning as we started was, what are we created to do, right? Who am I? Identity. Where do I belong? Community. And the third one, those of you that are pragmatists in the room are like, finally, here's the application. What am I supposed to do with this? And scattered throughout this passage, I see four clear commands, okay? The first one is that we are called to offer spiritual sacrifices. These spiritual sacrifices include praise, thanksgiving, loving service for the sake of others. Again, Romans 12 tells us, in view of God's mercy, we are to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice of worship. So making sacrifices is no longer an event. It used to be an event. You made sacrifices. Now it's all of our lives. It's an ongoing thing. It's a lifestyle thing. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that we're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. We're saved to do good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to walk into. 
So maybe think about this for a moment, this idea of calling in the Bible. When you bring it all together, right, as we land the plan on this idea of calling, let's think about this. Here's what Scripture tells us. Before God created anything, he had a plan for the world. He had it all planned out. And that includes plans for your life. I believe it's both corporate and individual. God had plans for your life. And not only that, but God knew that you would be a sinner like everybody else. And he already had made a plan for your redemption, for your salvation. And then in real time in history, God made that plan happen. But he also had a plan for for every aspect of your life. He knew what he would call you to do. See, Scripture says he saved you by grace in order for you to walk in good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Before he even saved you, he already had good work for you to do. And in that plan, he also had people for you to be in community with. He had circumstances that he knew were going to unfold in your life, some good and some bad. Down to the particulars and the details, God knew and planned everything in your life to bring you to the specific place that you are in right now to serve him in the way that you are called to serve him. That's crazy. Like, is anybody else just like, wow. And, and every part of your life, look, nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing is wasted. He is, he's either sovereign over it all or he's not. And I believe he is. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand how the things in our life can possibly be there. But we can trust and we can know that there's a God who is good. And that doesn't mean that everything in your life that happens is good. But it means that he will find a way in his infinite knowledge from his perspective in heaven that we can never have. He will find a way to redeem it. Some of those things we'll see in this life and some of those things we won't understand to heaven. And by that point, we'll either understand it or it won't matter. I'm good either way. Calling is just an incredible concept. Before God even called you into his family, he already had good work for you to do. So we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Second thing we're told to do in this passage is verse 9, declare his praises. Declare his praises. With joy, I might add. Because you find joy all over the Bible. We are called out of darkness into light to tell the world about the goodness of God. To declare his praises. What a testimony. Some people in your life right now just need to hear about the goodness of God. Just tell them what has the Lord done for you. Tell them about his goodness. The third thing we're told to do is abstain from sin. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The Bible tells us all over the place that there is a battle going on. It's a very real battle. So Paul tells us you got to get up, you got to put on the armor of God. Remind yourself of the truth of God's word and your salvation. 
assurance you have in Christ, and you've got to go to battle. Sometimes we forget this battle is going on. We can kind of feel it, but we sort of pretend that it's not happening, right? There's a battle going on. We want to be faithful as exiles. We have to abstain from sin. Why? Because we want to be a testimony to the world of what life can look like under the reign of God. We're not going to do it perfectly. But there ought to be something about our lives that is attractive to people. The people look at it and they say, I want that. That person lives differently. Their life's not perfect, but they have a hope. And they have a joy that just doesn't even make sense. Which is why the flip side of abstain from sin is that we want to live good lives. Verse 12. So we don't just turn away from the things that are not actually life-giving to us and good for us, but we want to turn towards those things which are truly good and truly beautiful. To live faithfully as exiles in the world, we have to abstain from sin, and we want to live good lives. And Peter closes this part of the letter with this. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's the tricky thing. Sometimes you're going to do the right thing. You're going to stand for righteousness. And as he says there in the verse, sometimes people are not going to get it. They're going to think that you're actually doing wrong, that the right thing is wrong. We're living in confusing times. It's, I mean, it's always been confusing, right? But sometimes when we live the right way, people are going to accuse us of doing wrong and of doing harm. That's why we've got to know God's word and we have to stand for what is right. Graciously, humbly, kindly. But we live according to his word. And we trust that ultimately the way that we live our lives by the grace of God, by his help, ultimately our lives will prove to be different. And will be a testimony to the world that it's possible to live a transformed life in Jesus Christ. To be the house of representatives. To say, here is what life is supposed to look like. I'm trying to do it by the grace of God. It's, and we give credit to the Lord. Not to ourselves. Well, we're just really good people. No, we're not. We're sinners, but we're saved by grace. God accepts us exactly as we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He changes us. And our character changes. This is what it means to be the people of God. To live as exiles in a world that is not our home. But to live faithfully, to be engaged with our neighbors in our community. To turn away from all which tears life down and to turn towards what is truly life-giving. To live life the way that God has created us to live. So that we can be priests. We can serve God in his house. And we can point people. We can show them the way of salvation. Where they can find true life. It's an incredible calling that God has placed upon our lives. But he will empower us by his spirit. He will do it. He is faithful. Will you join me as we pray together? God, you are a God who calls. And you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. So Lord, I pray that today as we find ourselves, just like the people 
living at the time of the writing of, of this letter for many years ago, we still find ourselves as exiles. And because of that, life is hard. But I pray, Lord, that the challenges of life would not cause us to turn away from you. They would cause us to turn into you and to draw from your infinite well of mercy and grace. And Lord, I pray that you would shape us into this calling. God, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have us do today. The unique opportunities that you have for us in this time and place in history to serve you and to proclaim your name and to be a steady and faithful presence in the world. God, I pray that we would turn away from sin. We would turn to you and to serving our neighbors. God, I pray that there's anyone listening today or perhaps in the days ahead that is having trouble seeing you, Jesus, for who you are. Maybe you have, your son has felt like a stumbling block to them. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would have an open heart and that they would seek to see you as the precious living cornerstone. That they would quit trying to build their own house. That they would surrender their heart and their life by faith to be built into your house. God, speak to hearts and speak to lives. Speak to all of us and reveal Jesus to us. And may we be built into your house, Jesus, that you would be the cornerstone of our lives, a sure and steady foundation from the storm. God, protect us, guide us, and lead us as your people and use us to represent your goodness and your grace to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. glad that you're here with us this morning. I hope you'll take a a moment to uh, greet the gardeners, uh, meet them maybe for the first time or encourage them. They'll be out in the lobby after service. Also, it's fall, so a lot is kicking up. There's a lot going on in the life of our church. We're going to have a new member class coming up, a leadership class. Um, Some of our support ministries, grief share, divorce care, are all kicking off. And so the best way to learn about that is to get on our email newsletter. If you're not currently getting that, there's a place on our website. You can just scroll all the way down to the bottom and just enter your name and your email, and you'll start getting that and get connected uh, to ways for you to grow and to serve here in the body of Christ. So I just encourage you to engage with us as we try to engage our community with the good news. Receive now this good word as you go out. I'm sorry, I forgot about, this is our last Isaiah uh, calling response. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send 
and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go as the people of God. Amen.